in our new member orientation or uh, induction uh, this morning, <clears throat> uh, we had a question of the seven questions, uh, seven vows in a sense that they have to affirm. Uh, the question number five was, was this, do you promise to exercise faithful stewardship of God's resources entrusted to you for the furtherance of God's kingdom and purposes? In other words, do you promise to help support the church uh, financially? Uh, why would we require that of members? Well, partly because Christian generosity is biblical. It's biblical. And in a sense, your generosity is evidence of your conversion. And what we're going to see in uh, the Apostle Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians, he's going to devote chapters 8 and 9 to this principle of generosity. So for the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at this idea of Christian giving. Now, full disclosure, sometimes this is a little awkward. I mean, we've all seen the folks on TV, right? I mean, I, I grew up in the age of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh, and all these people who just abused people, literally robbing widows of their wealth and promising them spiritual benefit uh, in the way. If we look at the medieval church and all the excesses of medieval church, it's, it's horrifying the abuse of this idea of generosity and tithing and giving uh, that's been there. But that, because people have abused this principle, does not mean that we have the liberty to ignore this principle. We don't really talk about giving much of this church, but it's in the text, and we talk about the text. And the Apostle Paul thought it was so important that he devoted eight, chapters 8 and 9 of this whole principle to the idea of generosity. But I think you're actually going to find it quite freeing, quite motivating, and does not smack of abuse or legalism as we go through these wonderful passages of Scripture. And I think you're going to understand the importance and principles of Christian generosity uh, and the evidence of that generosity is to what the Lord has done in your heart. For he became poor for our sakes, even though he was rich, as we will see this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and, be, and unpack this wonderful passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians. God, in faith we turn to you and pray, God, that you would both convict and encourage us, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would help us to not be those people who are, who are selfish and greedy uh, and not willing to, uh, to show generosity, but also the, to not beat ourselves up when we are. We really need the peace of the Lord, and we need the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to us, God. So let the lessons that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians some 2,000 years ago be the lessons that we need to hear today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking at 15 verses today, and uh, it, uh, some of this just didn't divide up smaller, so it might be of assistance if you look at your home group helps insert uh, to kind of see how we're going to break this down. We're going to see the example of the Macedonian church uh, in verses 1 through 7, the example of Christ in verse 8 through 10, and the expectations of the Corinthians and in, in sense by application all Christians in verses 11 through 15. So first of all, the example of the Macedonians, verses 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. God says, Paul writes, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of their affliction, their abundance of joy, and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. 
For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Now, again, you see here this passage starts off with now. So it's, it's kind of a connection back to what we previously talked about. And you might recall as we've gone through 2 Corinthians, the apostle spent really kind of the first seven chapters uh, basically encouraging them, admonishing them, uh, expressing his concern. And, be, and it was a very, very intimate, very personal letter about his love for them and how they need to come back in the fold. False teachers had gone in and they had corrupted much of the beliefs of the Corinthian church. And they had turned many of them against the apostle Paul. So he sent Titus to go and, and, and kind of encourage them to repent. And we just got back, I think it was uh, two weeks ago, where Titus shows back up after Paul had been searching for him and gave the good news. The Corinthians have, re- have repented. They have repented and they love us and they love the gospel and they are ready to move forward in the ways of the Lord. So Paul is kind of capitalized on that because one of the things that had happened is before all the mess started in the Corinthian church, the Corinthians were pulling together a collection to help aid the churches in Jerusalem and in Judea. But that had been put on hold because one of the accusations against the apostle Paul was that he couldn't be trusted. So let me go back to that, that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which Paul was sort of closing out that letter. And he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, so they've already been talking about this collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also, on the first day of, e- of every week, one of, you is to put aside, uh, uh, one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive... Whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me, I go also, they will go with me. So this is, the, this is the principle here uh, that's going on here. That They had had this system when they got together and they worshipped. By the way, this is one of the verses we would use, for instance, to defend our position of worshipping on Sunday as opposed to the Seventh-day Adventists who say you must worship on Saturday, they got together, the early church was getting together during the apostolic era on Sunday, the first day of the week. And they pulled this collection together. So Paul was going to come into Corinth, they were going to have this collection, and one of their number was going to go with Paul to Jerusalem to give this money to the Jerusalem church. Why? Why was that so important? Well, there's a principle here. One of the things that was, Paul was so zealous about was bringing together Jew and Gentile. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They hated each other. And yet, in Christ Jesus, they are one family. The enemies become brothers and sisters because they have a common father. They've been adopted into the same family. They must have peace. And Paul struck on this idea. As the Jewish church had, had given the new covenant to the Gentiles and seen the promises given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that through Abraham the nations would be blessed, the Gentile churches can pay back monetarily and help them financially during their times of difficulty, famine, and that kind of thing. 
And the Jerusalem church was, was struggling. We, you go back to uh, Acts chapter uh, 2, Acts chapter 4, and you find this, uh, these statements. All those who believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone who might have need. So people were literally selling property, giving the money to the Jerusalem church to help impoverished people. One of the th- things that happened in Jerusalem, you remember the day of Pentecost, you had 3,000 people. Many of them were pilgrims who got saved, probably a lot of them stayed. They gave up families, careers, trade, and that kind of thing, and they stayed in Jerusalem, so they had this huge influx of immigrants, for instance. You also had the charity and the love of the Christian church had become legendary, so many people who were needy and poor were coming for assistance. We see the example of feeding widows and that kind of thing, so they had a a pretty significant drain on their resources, so then there was also this, uh, perhaps a famine going on and those sorts of things. So basically, they had, the reason why Paul was asking for this collection is they needed the money in Jerusalem. And what a wonderful, wonderful testimony to be able to give that money that comes from the hated Gentiles who are now part of the family of God. So as we have, they had gleaned Christian lessons, uh, uh, lessons of the faith from the Jerusalem church, now they would be given uh, back uh, in generosity in a financial way to that church. So he says here, grace of God which was given, that idea of cherished grace is mentioned five times in just verses 1 through 9 here. So the whole principle here is of grace, and that's important. There's often a lot, a, lot, a lot of legalisms that are so often attached to giving. We need to understand what it really is an expression of grace. And he uses this example, which is kind of a little bit of a risk from Paul's standpoint, of another country and how wonderful the Christians there are. <laughs> now, that's a little, because there's some jealousy here. Macedonia, where's Macedonia? That's to the north of Greece. Who came from Macedonia? Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great uh, united all those Greek Macedonian city-states together and basically conquered the world. You know, so there's probably a little bit of jealousy among the Athenians and the Corinthians and the Spartans about the Macedonians. But he mentions them because they, they are just uh, consumed with Christian charity. And it's not because they are so well-off, so peaceful, and so wealthy. He says here that they are actually experiencing much affliction and deep poverty up in Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia by name that we know of in Scripture were Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. They had been ravaged by war. The Romans, of course, wanted to defeat the Greeks and wanted to replace them as the predominant force in the Mediterranean world. So they were quite cruel often when they would attack a Macedonian or Greek army. And the Macedonian had been struggling in that entire region with deep poverty. Um, when Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 129, he says, For it, is your, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only for you to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you've endured. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And, said, and yet, even with all the affliction and deep poverty, they possessed abundance and the wealth of their liberality. They did not use their hardship as an excuse to not be generous. And then he says here that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord here. So a person's view of money will reflect their view of God. These folks got converted. They loved the gospel. 
There was a need for Christian brothers in Jerusalem, and in their, even beyond their ability, they were willing to give. Now, I would not recommend, when we think of beyond our ability, we think of credit card, right? Don't put your, don't put your tie on the credit card. You know, so, but you may need to downsize your lifestyle in order for you to be able to practice the kind of generosity that the, that the, uh, the scriptures encourage. So they're giving much greater than would normally be expected of such a poor church. Now, some of you who've been to a third world country and maybe have eaten with, uh, with Christians there, uh, sometimes it's overwhelming the hospitality they give, isn't it? I mean, you think about it, they'll put this lavish banquet out for you, and you think, you know, and they're living in a hut or something like that, and you think, where do they come up with this? They just can't help it. They just can't help it. They just want to serve, right? Wonderful illustration in Mark chapter 12. Remember the poor widow? The poor widow that was at the treasury, Mark chapter 12, 42. A poor widow came and put in the two small, small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman put in more than all her con- uh, con- uh, contributors to the, all the contributors to the treasury. For they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. But in all she owed, it was all she owned. And she also, and all for her to live on. Sorry, I struggled with that so much. Jesus goes on to say, or actually said before this, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That woman's heart was with the Lord. In faith, she was giving. Now, if she had come to me and said, listen, I'm a poor widow, don't even know where tomorrow's meal's coming from, but I think I'm going to give everything uh, that I have to the treasury, I, I probably would counsel her not to. It seems like that's kind of what Paul did with the churches of Macedonia. He was somewhat appalled by how generous they were. And yet the principle here is just delightful. God would have us be much more like that poor widow than someone else, like, for instance, Achan. You remember Achan coming into the land of Canaan under Joshua, going to go into the conquest. Everything's all promised. Uh, they're all excited during the, the battle of Jericho. Achan goes in. Everything was supposed to be given to God. There was a ban on, on uh, plunder. Achan goes in, he finds a, a mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, and he stole it. He knew it was wrong. He knew he wasn't supposed to, but he stole it. He wanted the money more than he wanted obedience. And he was selfish, and he hid it under his tent, and his family knew about it. You remember the price that the people of God paid for that selfishness? 36 soldiers died in the next battle at Ai. His family was executed as a result of that. So what you want to do is you want to go to school on both of them. You want to be, but you want to be a whole lot more like that old widow. And from a negative standpoint, you want to learn the lesson of Aachen, who hoarded money to the detriment of the church rather than to the benefit of the church. But I love how Paul's language here is they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. That idea of begging is the same word that's mentioned when the father de- uh, desperately cries out to Jesus to cast the demon from his own son. They were just driven emotionally to be able to, to give here. And they were urging him. I like what Christensen said. He said that, uh, that they did the begging, not Paul. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know that I've, ever, I've never had to beg y'all to give. Y'all tend to be a generous people, and the needs of the church are, are, are met. Uh, and, but you often think about that. You think about people who are begging for money all the time. But it's the givers here that were begging Please let us give more. Let us give more. Let us give more. We'll trust the Lord for all of this. It's a great source of encouragement with me. There's an, there's an intensity here with this, this devotion to be able to give. 
And, and one of the things uh, that, that we also find out from Jesus, it's interesting, there's, there's one direct quote of Jesus outside of the Gospels, and it's found in Acts chapter 20, and it has to do with this idea of charity, where Jesus is quoted by saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I think a wonderful example of this in the Old Testament on a positive standpoint is the people of God. You know, when they, they left uh, the, the Red Sea part of they came into the wilderness and they needed to build a tabernacle. So to build the tabernacle, they needed gold, they needed linen, they needed uh, wool uh, materials and things like that. So in Exodus 36, they received from Moses, uh, uh, there was a, this call for giving of offerings, of free will offerings uh, to provide for the tabernacle. And it says here in Exodus 36, the people were bringing much more than enough for the construction to the point that the craftsmen said, uh, we have too much. We don't know what to do with all this gold. And, uh, and then they had to put a new law in, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. They literally had to be restrained in their giving. Yeah, that's kind of how you see so Paul here. Like they're, they're just giving everything they have, and they just said, listen, it's okay. You're going to make yourself worse off than the, the people in Jerusalem if you're not careful here. But here's a principle here, and this is an important principle, and this will help you keep from getting things lopsided. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Grace always comes before works. They didn't give in order to get God's favor. They didn't give in order to become members of the church. They gave because they had already received God's favor. In terms of a theological application in Christianity, indicatives, who you are in Christ, always come before imperatives. I, you know, I, I think we're at a point where we have to mention that almost every Sunday, that the good works follow the grace that God has given you. You cannot earn your salvation by being a good person. And that is a standard 2,000-year-old principle of Christianity. And yet, you might recall a few weeks ago I mentioned a Barna poll where 58% of Christians believe that if a person is good enough or does good enough things, they can earn their way into heaven. How they can even claim the title Christian and believe that you get to heaven by being good is beyond my imagination. So you've got to keep that principle in mind here. And I'll be honest with you, in church history, there have been times when people would imply that if you give us enough money, we'll get you a seat in heaven. We'll pay some time out of purgatory. We'll put your name up here so everybody can know what a great giver you are. It makes sermons like this difficult because this has been so badly done in the past in so many ways. But one of the things, again, is that grace comes before works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I'm going to finish up Jacob's verse here, his life verse. By grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2. And not that, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. Truly one of the good works that a Christian needs to pursue in terms of a primary importance is generosity. How is he going to, all the things that God has given him, how is he going to share with others? So there's this abundance of faith here, and then he, he, uh, he continues to put, just to emphasize this idea that that we are to put our faith, our knowledge, and our love into action. It's a gracious work. Let, let me mention this, too. This is not the, the offering that he is taking up here. It would be kind of a special offering. He's not talking about tithing. 
Tithing gets a little complicated, right? It's, uh, people ask me, should I give net or gross? I said, God loves a cheerful giver. I, I don't want to be boxed into a corner. It's up to you whether you give net or gross. And what is net and gross? I mean, it's different with each culture. It's based on a bunch of different things. If you own a business, it's different than if you work for somebody. You know, we just have to be careful of that spirit of legalism, right? But the principle is all in here. Christians give. Christians recognize the grace they have by gracing others with generosity. Now we see here the example of Christ, which uh, he kind of pulls in the big guns here, right? Like, you don't have to do this, but Christ did, you know. So it's a little unfair in a lot of ways. No, it's actually very appropriate. So the example of Christ in verses 8 through 10 here, I am not speaking this as a command. See, he makes that point. I am not commanding this. I'm trying to stir up your heart. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of our love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is your, to your advantage, who are the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to, deserve, to desire to do it. So I love this. He's saying, I mean, Paul is just so honest. You know, he has the, he has the clout. He could command it, but then he couldn't face his Lord. He knows this is not a thus saith the Lord. It's a, I really encourage you as an apostle. I really encourage you to express this as a, as a Christian faith. And, and too many people turn principles into commands in Scripture. He says, I'm not speaking as a command. I give my opinion on this matter. He's not demanding that they give. He's encouraging them to give. But I love this. He, he says, it's to your advantage. You know, this is kind of my... When I realize someone is not tithing, they're not generous... They're not showing hospitality. Whatever. I actually kind of feel sorry for them. I, I think about the blessings that they are missing out on. And, 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 and the insecurity. Something happens in their life. They're not generous. They're not giving. They're not tithing to the church. They're not uh, showing hospitality, whatever it might be. And then something happens in their life, financially, for instance. One of the first things they gotta, that's going to hit them is think, oh, I wonder if this is because I'm not tithing. I wonder if this is not be, it's because I'm not giving. For those of you who are giving generously, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to think, oh, God's, God's doing this because I've not been faithful with my resources. He's doing it for some other reason, probably because you've made a God of materialism. You need the confidence. There's an advantage here. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. 2 Corinthians, Paul will go later on and says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Those of you who are generous know this, don't you? You You almost fear not giving. And there may be times you get discouraged. And we need to know this. To, I mean, because can we be honest? If you are tithing, that's a lot of money. I've done the math before. I could have a Mercedes Benz if I didn't tithe, you know? But why would I give up a Prius? But, uh, I, you know. <laughs> there, is, there is such a profound blessing that it's worth the pain. And I'll be honest with you, if you're given like the Macedonians, you will experience pain. 
there's, this, there's kind of this pragmatism out there, too, in regards to giving. Well, you know, and you'll hear people say, you know, well, I, I, I wasn't giving. I started giving, and then my business tripled. And that does happen, and that's legitimate, and that's not a bad testimony. But if you get too much of that, it almost turns into pragmatism. Well, I want my business to triple, so I better give some money. It's not that that can't be a principle that we, that we, we understand. I mean, God's given us that principle, right? Sowing and reaping. But why do we give? We give, we just love God. And we love his people. And the church cannot function without funds. So we see the example of uh, of Christ here. And it's, of course, a wonderful example in Luke chapter 19 that I think really helps us, again, to understand this principle that that the generosity comes as a result of grace in your life. That wonderful story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus, I mean, I probably should have waited until April 15th to preach this. He was a tax collector. You know, and, uh, and uh, you know, we have the most bizarre system of taxation in, my, in our country. Can I say that? You know, we, we don't, trying to do the gymnastics of figuring out how much tax you owe is absolutely overwhelming. So we end up paying people hundreds of dollars to do the taxes for us. And if we get it wrong, we could go to jail. But the federal government seems to know exactly how much we would have owed in the, in the first place. Because they tell us you pay too much or you pay too little. I mean, what is this, like a guessing game, you know? I don't know why I went down that road. Well, I'm, I know I'm bitter. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the story of Zacchaeus, right? You got, he enters Jericho here. Uh, he was passing through, and there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, so he got even more than anybody else. And he was rich because they tended to extort people. You know, basically had Roman authority, and if you don't give more... Uh, you know, you could be in trouble. It's, it's, it's a thug situation. It's mafia. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass. And when Jesus came to the place, I love the drama of this. Jesus looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Y'all, don't be afraid to have a conversation with lost people. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And then, uh, because that's what people, hypocrites sound like. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will give it back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. I get emotional when I read that passage. This guy was scum, the worst kind of scum. He worked for the enemy. And bam, like that, Jesus changed his heart. We know we're saved because Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And what's the evidence of that salvation? He gives back half of his possession, so 50% of his wealth he gives to charity. The remaining 50% he gave four times the amount he had extorted from people for collecting taxes. And he was rich because he extorted people for collecting taxes. He appears to have emptied his bank account in evidence of his repentance. Because a changed heart will change your perspective on money. He went from trusting his riches to trusting in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about uh, Jesus, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. That probably, we think about Jesus being poor. That probably, he was, but 
most people were. I don't know that he was any poorer than other people. People took care of him and that kind of thing. He's really talking about the, the poverty he endured coming down from the throne of heaven to be born a, a man. And Philippians 2 gives us that idea. He emptied himself, the, his kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a, there's a humility with giving. There, there is, there, it's humble to do that. It's humble to rely on the Lord for your provision. But no, folks, it doesn't matter how humble you become, you will never become as humble as God becoming a baby. He will always be our example. John 1.16 says, For the fullness we have received the grace upon grace. God cannot have our hearts if he doesn't have our money. Then we see here the expectations of the Corinthians, and we'll just wrap up with verses 11 through 15 here. But now finish doing it also. That's the collection. Uh, so that, there, there, uh, that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be a completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to that uh, what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So he's saying, finish doing this, can keep going up with, a, 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 and he's going to kind of com- continue with this thought for the next couple of chapters here. But notice this, that he's saying it's not just a matter of intentions. You need to go ahead and do it. You know, what do they say about good intentions? So, so evidently, they had told Titus, we desire to do this. He says, okay, do it. Do it. Don't, don't you, doesn't it just kind of crawl over you when everybody says, hey, let's get together for lunch sometime? Yeah, we'll do that sometime. You know, I try never to say that anymore because unless you set the date at that time, then it's not going to happen, Right? Your intentions can be good, but you've got to put it on the calendar to actually make it happen, right? So basically, good intentions don't, don't fill a hungry belly. And he's saying, go ahead and do the collection here. And notice this. He's trying to encourage them. This is not for the ease of others. Let me give you another principle. In many churches, if I was preaching this, you know what you would be thinking? I need to give money to homeless people. That's, that's kind of the, the, the cultural application to this kind of thing. I've been given a house. I've been blessed, so I need to give all my money. I would suggest that you do not need to be giving your money to homeless people. You do not need to be giving your money to homeless people. The enemy of good charity is bad charity. Now, if you have the discernment to know this person is not going to go out and buy booze and drugs or that he's not manipulating you and lying through his teeth or whatever, and you want to spend that amount of time with them, and if you want to give them something to help them on it, that's fine. You have liberty to do that. But, but everybody, we support a number of organizations that help homeless people, and every one of those organizations will tell you, do not give money to them. The enemy of good charity is bad charity. But it eases our conscience a little bit. And homeless people, frankly, in our culture, have been paraded around as the, the ultimate uh, source of, of, of what ought to be our charity. But many of those people have sinned themselves into poverty, and you're not helping by just giving them a, a free dollar. I mean, it happens on the church all the time. The, the deacons are always kind of running interference. Sometimes we give people money, but we try to steer them. We have little pamphlets out there that still them, where, tell them where they can get a place to stay, where they can get a free meal, this kind of thing. 
I'm a little sensitive about it because I came from Columbia, and everybody's been in Columbia. It's a real issue down there. Uh, so anyway, this, but just keep that in mind. The enemy of good charity is bad charity. And there's a lot of bad charity out there that doesn't expect a change of behavior and actually promotes misbehavior by giving charity here. But he goes on to say here, this is not for the ease of others, that there's an equity system here. And you know what's interesting? What he quotes here is when the manna came into the wilderness. And evidently, when they would go out, they'd wake up in the morning, you got uh, cake laying all over the ground, given by God to feed the people for those 40 years, they would go out and collect it. And some people would collect a lot. Some people wouldn't collect so much. If they were old or maybe they were infirmed or they were too young, they maybe wouldn't get very much. So there was a mutual sharing there. People who had a lot would give the people who didn't have much some, and that's what he's saying here. There ought to be an equity here. The people in Jerusalem are going hungry. You're not. Help them out. And in so doing, we end up uniting the, uniting the church here. We'll just close with this quote from Kent Hughes because I think, again, the principle here is Paul's helping us with a historical situation, but the principle is just as valid today uh, as, it is, as it was 2,000 years ago, is that Christians should practice charity because it's an expression of what God has done for them. You grace others because God gave you grace. Kent Hughes says this, When we know that our lives are not our own, neither will we think that our possessions are our own. It is easy to surrender part when we've already given up the whole. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? You've become a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you have already given up your whole life to follow Jesus Christ, why would you not let him have your wallet as well? Father, in faith, we turn to you and just ask, God, that you would help us to be generous people. However, you define that in our own lives. But help us to be wise people, too, and not to be manipulated uh, with people who are wrongly applying texts. Help us to take an honest account of what we have and, and an honest assessment of what other people need. We pray, God, that we would be like those Macedonians, that we would be like Christ and be exemplary in our generosity because of what you've done for us.